there is this one piece of the 360 wellness picture that we somehow think we all just know how to do. Like we all just know how to be parents or we know how to be good coworkers or we're just going to get married and somehow we're going to understand how to compromise or be partners. For some reason, we have not associated relational wellness with practicing, with developing our empathy muscles, our listening muscles. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Today on 9 to 5-ish, we have Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice joining us. They are the duo who started SoulCycle, the indoor spinning fitness class that at one point had over 80 U.S. locations. I don't even know why I read that. Everyone knows what SoulCycle is. Carly and I have been long obsessed with these two and what they created. They stepped away from SoulCycle in 2016, and now the fitness entrepreneurs have launched their next venture. It's called Peoplehood, and it focuses on improving our relational fitness. It's a wellness studio. The first location is in New York that is helping clients improve their relationships and strengthen their interpersonal skills. And in a country where we have a loneliness epidemic, these founders are trying to bring people back together. Elizabeth and Julie, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thanks so much for having us. It's so good to be here. I love getting to see you. I'm so excited to have you guys, as I said, and as you know, Carly and I continue to be so inspired by what you have created and how you've created it together. So we're going to get into a lot of things. I would like to start off with a brief lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Elizabeth, first job you got paid for. The first job I got paid for was babysitting. I was an epic babysitter. I owned the neighborhood. All the moms loved to call me and have me come and hang with the kids. And I loved that. Next one. What was your biggest pinch me moment at SoulCycle? You guys had a ton of like celebrities and influencers and all types of people. Was there one that stood out to you, Julie? Well, we did throw a pretty epic 60th birthday party for Oprah. And when we started the business, we always said we wanted to be on Oprah's show one day. But unfortunately, Oprah went off the air before we became any sort of a success. So getting a phone call that she wanted to celebrate her birthday at SoulCycle was pretty awesome. Elizabeth, what's one product you can't live without? My Theragun. I am obsessed with that thing. I got the um, head one, too. The head one? There's one. That is like I get migraines and so you wear it on your head and it vibrates and it is heat. It's crazy. Thank you so much because the holiday season is coming up and I know a couple of people who would really benefit from that. Thank you, Danielle. Yes, all, all the time. I'll send you my referral link. Julie, what is something we can't Google about you? That I have a phobia and that I don't take elevators. Ever? Ever. So like when you pick an office space, it has to be within yes, like how many flights? The best business partner in the world built me an office for SoulCycle on the very first floor. I live on the fourth floor. 
My husband is very resentful of the fact that we live in New York City with no view. But I will walk as far as you want me to, as long as someone will let me in the staircase. The most I've ever done is 71 flights. I walked to the top of 30 Rock. It was for a wedding at the Rainbow Room. I was in full hair and makeup. And the most interesting thing is that post 9-11, stair access is pretty hard to get. And so it took seven security guards to each do 10 flights with me because none of them could make it the entire way. So each one met me up 10 flights. (laughs) Elizabeth, do you meditate? And if not, is there like a mental health thing or wellness thing you do every day? I do meditate. And I also do Jinshin Jitsu, which is the precursor of acupressure. I do that every single day on myself. And I have since I was 23. It helps restore the energetic pathways in your body. And by breathing and relaxing, just feel so much better. And the meditation that I am obsessed with comes from Jaya Ashmore and Open Dharma. And she is really interested in deep rest. She thinks that we are not resting at all in our culture. And I just finished a six-day silent retreat where we meditated and did walking meditation for six days. And it was amazing. Is it hard to not talk? No, it's really not. Honestly, it's so, it sounds so off-putting and so difficult, but it is actually so good. Last lightning round question. You guys can each answer. Julie, you first. One person you would want to have at a dinner party, living or dead? Oh, so easy, Kris Jenner. I keep hoping that if I say it enough times that she's going to actually call me and ask me for dinner. I have the same thought. I'm like, if I put it out there, she will come. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Elizabeth, same question. I I know where this is the theme. It's definitely Oprah. It's a million times Oprah. So before we get into peoplehood, Julie, I want to go back to the beginning of your relationship and founder journey. How did you guys meet? And then how did you know that you would be good working together? Well, let me just say that Elizabeth and I met on a blind date. We like to joke around that it was the best blind date that either of us had ever been on. But contrary to popular belief, you know, we weren't college best friends or roommates or something. People always assume that female business partners must have been besties in a past life. I had just moved to New York from Los Angeles. Elizabeth had moved to New York from Colorado. I was taking some fitness classes at one gym. Elizabeth was taking fitness classes at another gym. I think we had both in our respective uh, places that we'd moved from experienced fitness as lifestyle. When I was in LA, I went hiking with my friends. I went biking with my friends. I was in a running club. And for me, fitness was really about time to connect with other people, time for myself, time to not be stressed out. It was really the best thing that I did for myself. And when I came back to New York, all I could find was boot camps and ways to burn calories, but nothing that was really joyful or nothing that made me feel good in my body or empowered. And so I had worked in the entertainment business and I had really learned how to turn people into brands. That's what I did. I was a talent manager. And so I kept saying to this one fitness instructor whose classes I was taking, I think this could be different. I think it could be branded. I think it could be a standalone experience. And one day she said to me, you know, there's a really interesting woman that takes my class at a different gym. And she's been saying that she wants to start a fitness business. The two of you should meet. And so was our blind date. We met in uh, January. 
We had lunch at the Soho house. It was one of those things where we sat down and we were so different in terms of our skill sets and what life experiences we had had. But we shared this super common vision and we talked from beginning to end. And I got into my cab that day to leave my lunch and my cell phone rang and it was Elizabeth. And she said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to research towels and I'm going to look for real estate and I'll call you on Thursday. And on Thursday, she called me and she had found a spot on Craigslist, which happened to be across the street from the apartment that I was living in. And we met there and the space looked fine. It was 1,300 square feet in the rear lobby of a building. It was a five-year sublet. And we went across the street to Starbucks and we wrote our business model on a Starbucks napkin that Elizabeth has since framed and put in her office. And it said that if we could see 100 people a day at $27 a bike, we could pay for our lease. We could pay to rent our bikes and we both had young children and we could pay for a little bit of childcare. And that's how we knew. (laughs) That was it. So Elizabeth, thinking back on that, I often reflect on the conversations that Carly and I had early on, right? And there is a degree of you can have a good feeling, you can kind of know, like you have a business plan, but so much of it, especially for you guys come back again in round two. Did you know that you were going to go into it and not hate each other? Or was that a happy surprise? I think that we went into it being optimistic and hoping that we would be able to do something that allowed us to find what we wanted. And and what we both wanted, the common vision that we shared, ended up being the visual language of what the brand became and also just the feeling of what we wanted to experience in those rooms and how to go about creating that so that everybody could also have that feeling. And those are two big, big pieces of what became that business and to be aligned on those things. And we continue to have that alignment is is super critical. I think we were lucky. I think we also really fought for our relationship. We fought for being able to stay connected and understand each other through the ups and downs of building a business and develop an intense amount of mutual respect and caring. And I think that because so many crazy things sort of happen around each of us and together, that if we didn't come back to that, this could have easily severed. And yet here we are 16 years later still pursuing, you know, these common goals that are about helping people really achieve something that doesn't exist in the market around just almost a quality of joy. It's a miracle that we've been able to do this and also something that we don't take for granted. Truly, looking back on the full experience, what was the highest high and what was the lowest low? Oh my God, can I just tell you, those things happen in the same 20 minutes. That is so crazy. That's a great question. (laughs) I just want to go back and say one thing about sort of knowing our relationship. And then Elizabeth, you're going to answer highest Mm -hmm. high and lowest low because I don't have that answer. To Elizabeth's point of fighting for our relationship, so much of what we learned through the process of 16-year relationship was that I don't think people just know. I think there's a point in relationships where you make a choice that you're either going to work on the relationship or you're not. I think that people have chemistry in the beginning of relationships. We see it in marriages, we see it in dating, and we see it in business partnerships. And I think Elizabeth and I had a lot of chemistry initially. I think we were really like seeing each other's visions and we were vibing. 
But pretty quickly into our relationship, we realized we were two people with a common vision and different needs and wants and ways that we went about things in the world. And Elizabeth made a really smart decision, which was to find us a coach. And we have been working with our same business coach for 16 years. I mean, we meet with her still weekly, monthly, depending on what's going on. And just like in a marriage, which, by the way, there are fascinating statistics around marriages, you know, first marriages, 50% divorce, second marriages, 70%, third marriages, 90%, which shows you that it's really not who you pick, but it's about the skills that you bring to a relationship. And the truth is, those are skills that Elizabeth and I worked really hard to learn. And those are the skills that have taken us through to have this very lasting partnership. And we do work at it and we do fight for it. And that is really what Elizabeth is talking about. And so, Elizabeth, tell us about your highs and lows. Oh, my God. Okay. Highs and lows. What is so interesting about that question, Danielle, is that I feel like that happened always and within like the same day or the same half an hour. And I always found it so remarkable. So like, I remember that we were going to go on tour with Oprah and I couldn't even believe that that could happen. I mean, I even get emotional thinking about it right now. There's a lot of Oprah in this interview. I know, but it's, (laughs) it's amazing. It was just amazing to be able to do that. And I mean, I was so thrilled anyway. And we all were, it was incredible for the team and it, it just was such, such a like highlight. And at that same time, I remember being on the phone and my dad was having a psychotic break. He was having a very serious mental health crisis. And I just couldn't believe that those two things could happen at the same time, like the highest high and the lowest low. And so I just... For me, like, it's such a reminder that everybody is having this human experience. And often we think that we're the only ones that are going through something. And it's, again, to bring it around to like the why of peoplehood, like to be able to see ourselves in each other is such a powerful thing. I completely agree with you guys on everything. I think what's weird about being people who build brands and co-founders is that I always thought I was a good communicator. (laughs) And then you like hire a team and I'm like, oh, I'm awful at this. And so that is something. And when we talk about peoplehood, we'll get there. Julie, I want to know when it came to the decision, when you left SoulCycle in 2016, one thing I'm fascinated by is how do you know when it's time to leave, especially something that you built? Looking back on it, I would say it's one of the hardest decisions that I think that we've ever made in our lives. I think, you know, and it's interesting, I think that one thing that I've really learned from working with a coach and sort of exploring myself in a different way, I think that you learn that there are business decisions and that there are emotional decisions. And I think when you're a founder and you create something that's so deeply personal and that means so much to you, decisions like that really lie at the intersection of both of them. And I will say that, you know, Elizabeth and I start businesses that we want to use. So we create businesses for us, right? We don't really ever create a business and say like, this is a billion dollar idea. How fast can we build it? How fast can we scale it? And how fast can we sell it? We're just not those kind of founders. We're the kind of founders that say, gosh, there's like a hole in the world. And like, it's a hole that we need to fill, whether we need to move our bodies or talk to other people, we build stuff for us. And so you know, when it came to kind of the end of the road for us at SoulCycle, I think it was a really tough decision. And look, I think that we began to understand that the vision that we had was different than the vision that 
people who had really at that point bought our company had for a long time. We had visions that were able to coexist, but we definitely got to a place where we could see that the vision was getting ready to change. And without being able to control our own destiny, there was a business decision that needed to be made and we made a business decision. I always say that if we were going to write a book or if I was going to write a book, it would really be about sort of the year that I spent like probably in a pretty deep depression about kind of not really knowing. I remember saying to Elizabeth before we signed the paperwork, which, you know, to get this like windfall of money and have all these people congratulating us and having a bigger exit than I think either of us would have ever thought about. You know, I remember saying to Elizabeth, I'll sign the paperwork, but we need to get a tiny office where me and you can go on Monday. Because the idea of Monday coming and not having like a desk or someplace to sit next to her for me was such a big idea to think about. And of course, because Elizabeth's the best business partner in the world, she helped me find an office on that very day. And we did have a place to go on Monday. On the ground floor. On the ground floor, of course. This one was even down three flights of stairs because that's how much she loves me. But I really do think that you can't underestimate, you know, when you're a founder, you know, I like to say I have three children. I have a 12-year-old and I have an 18-year-old. And in between them, we had SoulCycle. And it was really like the day we sort of left and said goodbye, walking out, it was a real big drop off emotionally, socially, in terms of the pace of life. And I would describe it as sort of a difficult time, but in hindsight, the right decision because our creative decision, our creative insights and our human instincts, the way that we wanted to treat people, the go forward vision that we had for the company, were not really going to be able to exist anymore. And so it was the end of a chapter that was sad, but necessary. I love that you said that Elizabeth found you guys an office just to like kind of think. And then Julie, one thing that made me laugh so much is obviously knowing you through SoulCycle and then seeing you depicted for something else on a TV screen. It really cracked me (laughs) up. So like, talk to me about like that moment in time of being like, there's this soul cycle peoplehood version of you. And then it's like, I get it. You're sad. You guys are in this little office. And then also this, like, if anyone's seen we crash, like you are depicted there and, and you worked there. When you think about this entrepreneur journey, what does that moment in time bring back for you? You know, the truth is I'm very bad at sitting still. It was a moment in time where uh, Elizabeth had some issues with her aging parents and she needed to go and deal with some family stuff. I was now spending more time by myself in our little office. It was actually Adam that came calling. I did not actually know Rebecca at all, even though that, of course, is how it's always depicted in a television series, that it must be women that met at a PTA. It couldn't be an actual founder that just called another woman to come work for them. But that's actually what happened. And I thought about it for a while. At first, I had thought that it wouldn't be a good fit for me. And then after, you know, after about eight months, what I actually realized was that in in order to kind of recharge myself, going and being in the middle of somebody else's vision, it kind of, in a weird way, (laughs) was relaxing. I could see that. (laughs) And it was, I mean, it was relaxing to the tune of working 22 hours a day, but it was still kind of interesting. Listen, looking back on the experience, it was a really interesting time at a really interesting company that was sort of part of, I think, a few really generation-defining companies. And for me, 
after caring so much about SoulCycle, it was actually a bit of a respite to just try to create something inside of somebody else's brand. I loved it, but you never love it like you love your own. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about global scale. I met a lot of really smart people, some of whom work at Peoplehood with us right now. And so it was something I hate to say I would actually do again. For me, it was a real learning and growth experience. And it got me through a time when being busy was really better than not. Elizabeth, I think back through the journey that Carly and I have been on for 11 years. And sometimes when I have five seconds to breathe, I'm like, would I do it again? And truly depends on the day. You guys are doing it again as a team. Are you masochists? And I mean this from like all of these could be said about myself or I think many entrepreneurs. Like, do you think that there's a type of addiction to being all in on something? The decision to like do it again as your own thing from the bottom up. I think the biggest question is, do you have more to do? And as Julie mentioned, she's not good at sitting still. And she was fervent about this idea. And the truth is I had benefited so much from what it is to try to get someone else's world and the work that we had done with our coach and understanding what is involved in maintaining connections with other people, whether it's like at home or at work or in my friend group or just what was going to feed me as a human being, that when Julie said she wanted to go all in on this, I just, I didn't really want to miss the opportunity not only to work with her again, but also to be able to try to like deliver a product that could touch people's lives and could matter to them and could help them achieve things and just feel more satisfied with a lot of the challenges that get put in front of all of us. So I don't know if that's masochistic or optimistic, but it's probably somewhere in between. (laughs) So tell me about for you, Elizabeth, like where did this idea start? And I love, Julie, you said you create the things that you guys want. So Elizabeth, for you, what what did you want out of peoplehood that you didn't see necessarily around you? We started looking even before the pandemic at the intersection of a lot of research. And this is big, big research that was being done around what does it mean to be connected to another human being and how do you do that and why do you do that and does it even matter and how do people think about that across different sectors? How do they think about that across medicine? How do they think about that in a spiritual context or in a business context or in a personal context? And so I think that once we started really understanding that the through line of everybody's research really came down to what is it to listen to someone else and what a terrible listener I am. I'm always like trying to think of what I'm going to say next or anticipate what somebody else's sentence is going to be. And I realize if this is happening for me, this is happening for everyone. And that is the sort of foundational piece for me and Julie. If we think this is happening for us, it's probably what everybody else is thinking, but they haven't articulated it yet. And so for us, we just decided, let us go all in on creating a one-hour experience. I just said to Julie, I'm like, I want to unfuck myself in under an hour. Can you help me with that? She's she's a lot more evolved than me. I can unfuck her in under an hour. But with me, as you can tell from our rapid fire, she meditates and I don't take elevators. So clearly unfucking me in an hour is impossible. 
Well, I was going to ask you, Julie, what are the variety of ways that you can like think about maybe how fucked up you are? Is it like work relationships? What is the spectrum of people that you're trying to target with peoplehood? Look, I think it's human beings. I think on any given day, we're all fucked up about something else. You know, it's like today I'm fucked up because I feel like an imposter, you know, as a successful first time founder trying to build a second time business, which feels so difficult. You know, yesterday I felt like an imposter as a mom. My kid got lunchtime detention. You know, the day before I felt like an imposter as something else. And I think, you know, depending on the day, what we're seeing actually at Peoplehood is that. Every week, you know, we each have something else going on in our life that takes top billing, right? We're all very complex human beings. We have jobs, we have families, we have aging parents, we have friends. And depending on what's going on at the moment, we all need sort of different types of spaces to talk about things. So at Peoplehood, you know, we have Peoplehood where you can come and process your own thoughts. We have Couplehood where you can bring your spouse or your partner and have some time together to talk about, you know, things that are going on in your relationship. We have motherhood or parenthood where you can come and sit with groups of like-minded people that have kids your age and sort through parenting issues. We have a group for female entrepreneurs where we can all sit and talk about the problems in our businesses. We said the same thing about SoulCycle, but I think it's the same thing about peoplehood. You know, it's a human experience. We just have human being problems and they tend to be different all the time. What do you think, for people listening here, what do you think are some of the core skills that are most helpful when it comes to building interpersonal dynamics and this idea of like relational fitness? First of all, how do you define relational fitness? And then for people who are looking to work on themselves, what are some of the things you think they should start with? Look, I think when you define relational fitness, I think the best way that we can help people think about it is when Elizabeth and I started Soul Cycle, fitness as a lifestyle wasn't even really a category, right? Yeah, neither was athleisure. You basically invented that. Wait, keep going. That's funny. No, but I think, you know, people weren't walking around New York City in Lululemon tights. There wasn't even a Lululemon here yet. And so I think when we think about it, right, we've come to understand that we need to move our bodies a few times a week if we want to have good cardiovascular health, if we want to have strong muscles and bones. Like we understand that habitual fitness is necessary. We understand that if we want to be intellectual and smart, we have to spend a certain amount of time in school learning to read, learning math. We're also finally beginning to understand that taking care of our mental health should be a weekly priority. And yet there is this one piece of the 360 wellness picture that we somehow think we all just know how to do. Like we all just know how to be parents or we know how to be good coworkers or we're just going to get married and somehow we're going to understand how to compromise or be partners. For some reason, we have not associated relational wellness with practicing with developing our empathy muscles, our listening muscles. And society is making this harder and harder for us. You know, our Surgeon General just issued an 80-page report about how we're in a loneliness epidemic. And that is for many reasons. We have no third places anymore. Religion is on a decline, which means we don't have these spaces where people can go just to be together. Families don't have dinner together anymore. We're on our phones all day long, so our interpersonal skills are being stripped out of our humanity. 
We had COVID, which put us years behind in terms of the way that we relate to each other. And all of these factors are really contributing to the fact that the skills that we never even learned how to practice before are now being taken away from us. There's a real shortage of us understanding how not to just be in relationships where we sleep next to somebody or we sit next to somebody at a dinner table, but we actually understand them. We actually see them. We make them feel seen. We make them feel like they matter. We feel like we matter. We feel like somebody is hearing us. Whether they're agreeing with us or not doesn't actually matter. It just matters that we feel recognized and heard. That is really a basic human need for people. And we do not know how to do that for each other. That was so well said. And honestly, now I want to like run to a peoplehood. So wrapping up, I have three questions. The first is, do you have to be in New York to try out peoplehood? No, you don't. It's so fantastic because we have an online platform that you can easily sign up and do it from anywhere. And people are so comfortable with video conferencing that it feels super intimate and super natural, but it's not Zoom. So the energy of it is different. It's designed differently and it takes you through the whole process from beginning to end. So you can meet you wherever you are. So building off of that, because talking about Zoom, Julie, we have a a question our newsletter audience wants to know. How can they facilitate more meaningful workplace connections if they're also working remotely? What I find so interesting about this is like, what are some ways that we can start to end the loneliest epidemic while also giving people flexibility to work from home if they need it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we actually have peoplehood at work and we've gone into several companies now. And it's interesting because in the way that we've been putting management skills into companies for years so that leaders can train and they can understand how to review people and how to create career trajectory and develop sort of harder skills, you know, what we're seeing now is that companies really no longer know how to create relationships, how to create softer skills, how to create culture. And so we've gone into several companies now with programs that we're calling water cooler, right? When people are working remotely or hybrid, people no longer have those moments where they can bump into each other in the kitchen over a cup of coffee or at the water cooler, get to know each other. And if we don't know each other and we don't have those small moments of interaction, then what ultimately happens is We're not collaborating correctly. We're not rooting for each other's ideas. We're actually not being as productive as we could be if we begin to understand each other and know each other as human beings. We have another program that we call the Silo Buster, where we're helping teams that are working on Zoom work cross-functionally with each other because you have two teams that are working on the same product, but they're never in the same space. They're never collaborating. They're kind of running at the same thing, but in two different silos. And that becomes really interesting. But I do think that for leaders that want to create these kind of environments, what does it take? It takes time and it takes really intention. People are not just going to get on screens and have meaningful connections with each other. Zoom happy hours where we send everyone in the company a bottle of wine or, you know, some beer and have them all just sit on a Zoom call are not going to create connections. We need to create intentional spaces and we need to give people tools to be able to do this because people just don't know how to do it on their own. Last question for both of you. You can have same or different answers. Who is someone else we should have on this show? Have you had Cleo Wade on? No. 
that's a great one. Yeah, that's a really good one. Cleo's great. She's she's a great connector. Her new book is amazing. I think she's got a lot of great tips for uh, creating authentic community. I think she would be awesome. Thank you guys so much. That was great. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>